Britain's biggest multinational spring exercise gets five stars from the Defence Secretary. Our commitment to European security is not going to lessen as a result of leaving the European Union. The real thing goes on in Iraq and Syria. We talk to the body counters. Is NATO neglecting its navies while Russia rebuilds? And Iran, why is Trump so against the nuclear agreement? Exercise Joint Warrior, one of the largest joint training events in Europe, has ended on Salisbury Plain. It culminated in a live demonstration complete with helicopters and jets. Ali Gibson was there. Apaches, Chinooks, wildcats and tornadoes soar overhead while parachute regiment troops and armoured vehicles assault the building. A demonstration from the Joint Expeditionary Force. It's a multinational quick reaction force led by the UK who will eventually deploy to deliver humanitarian aid, a rapid combat force or for deterrence. Here, British, Lithuanian, Latvian, Swedish and Danish troops showed what they had for watching VIPs. Among them, the Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson. I started by asking him what he thought of Exercise Joint Warrior. It's a perfect example of how Britain can play a real leading role in bringing so many nations together, 17 nations, 12,000 armed forces from those 17 different nations. And it goes to show the expertise, the brilliance of our armed forces and the fact that we are world leaders. How important are forces like this going to be after Brexit when we, we, you know, we have less of a link with the European Union? Uh, our commitment to European security is not going to lessen as a result of leaving the European Union. Before the European Union was ever created, we were absolutely pivotal in making sure that uh, Europe remained secure and stable and have stood up against aggression uh, on continental Europe time and time again. Uh, Actually, our role in the armed forces becomes more and more important as we leave uh, the European Union because actually people see the vital role that we play in providing security right across continental Europe. Um, you made a, a, a statement yesterday in the House about Syria. Where would you say that our mission and operations shader you know, now stands going forward? Well, our armed forces have been doing an amazing job in terms of degrading the ability for Daesh to spread their evil across Syria uh, and Iraq. And we can't underestimate what an impact we've had. 1,600 strikes that we have undertaken uh, right across Iraq and Syria, taking and depriving them of territory and their ability to operate. That is about one thing. It's about keeping Britain safer and our amazing armed forces have been doing that by making sure that Daesh can't strike not just in Iraq and Syria but here in Britain. There are normally two joint warrior exercises every year. This year are just one. Why is that and is it linked to any gaps in capability? Not at all. We're actually, we're not just doing joint warrior here, but we're doing Operation Safe Syria in Oman, which is going to be our largest single exercise, is going to be demonstrating with our uh, Omani uh, partners and allies about what a significant and important role that we can play in terms of uh, being able to run operations, project our power, project our influence right across the globe. Uh, it is a clear demonstration of our commitment to playing a global role going forward. So just one joint warrior exercise for 2018 and it's now over. 
these troops won't come together on this scale in the UK for another year. But the Defence Secretary says the Oman exercise in autumn will fill that gap. Ali Gibson reporting. Well, Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is here in the studio. Hello, Christopher. It's a long time since that exercise the Defence Secretary spoke about. South Syria has happened, isn't it? Yeah, it's called Joint Warrior uh, that we've just heard, been hearing about. And they are saying, well, we're doing the one in with the Omanis and therefore that's the best we can do. There's a bit more to it than that, like not having enough ships that are wound up that they can actually go... 2001 was the last time we did this Omani exercise. When it happens, we probably move more of British forces, all three forces, out to Oman and that area than at any time. It's the biggest force movement of all. And that in itself is a remarkable, remarkable exercise, The you know, just, just being able, able to do that. Mm. And also it's an, it's an extraordinarily um, important ally. I mean, we, we bought... Sultan Abus on the throne. We sort of uh, knocked out the uh, mm. the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen's uh, uh, attempt to overthrow him, and so it's much bigger in the Middle East at a time when the Middle East ain't getting any quieter. Now, the uh, the Defence Secretary also mentioned Operation Shader, and in the news this week has been reports that RAF strikes on IS in Iraq may have killed civilians. Um, the MOD has said that um, there was someone killed in Syria by an RAF strike. So these things are going on for real. It just reminds you, doesn't it? I mean, you can have big exercise like that, whereas the real thing is 24 hours a day and that is something which the public don't often link up with. Mm, well, let's talk some more about that with Hamid Dardigan, who is co-founder of Iraq Body Count and the charity Every Casualty Worldwide. Hamid, good to speak to you today. Now, your organisation has been counting violent fatalities in Iraq since 2003. What do your yes. figures say about civilian deaths in the country due to RAF airstrikes since the start of Op Shader in 2014? Well, we don't have figures on uh, deaths caused by particular coalition actors when it comes to airstrikes. Uh, in particular, this is because it's actually difficult for people on the ground to know which force was responsible uh, for any uh, given airstrike. And I think that's also why it's so important that um, reports from on the ground are followed up by uh, by governments. Mm. Um, because uh, it's really only they who know uh, what they were doing when they release bombs, where uh, and which targets may have been the ones that were, uh, you know, that led to civilian casualties. So, so Hamid, when the MOD says there's no evidence of civilians being killed by its airstrikes in Iraq, what do you think? Well, the issue is that you actually have to look. And uh, part of the problem is, of course, that um, when mistakes are, are made, that's made because of assessments from the air. Um, and then to... Uh, afterwards rely on assessments from the air to decide whether um, you know a, a mistake has happened or not um, is is going to be self-defeating I and mean, one really has to take information from people uh, who are following up on the ground and there are those people um, I mean the first port of call nowadays uh, for uh, airstrikes is Air Wars which I'm sure you've heard of as an excellent um, NGO working uh, from London but also with people um, in, in conflict zones and um, when they provide information about a particular airstrike, it really behooves the government then to follow up and see if they might have been involved in that particular strike. And are strike you finding that that's happening? Um, 
if what is happening that the government is following up when there have been allegations of um, civilians being... to my knowledge uh, to my knowledge no i mean the thing is um all the, or at least not officially and i think that's that's really what's required it's required that the government who after all says that it is doing everything it can to avoid civilian casualties actually also does monitor its performance i mean we can't improve in anything in life unless we actually see how well we're doing at it and i think that sort of lack of interest uh, doesn't fit very well with the recommendations of the Chilcot report, for example, which actually asked for the government to do more to obtain a fuller understanding of the human costs of conflicts in Chris which we're engaged. Christopher Lee, is the government legally obliged to find out if civilians have been hurt or killed in its airstrikes? Um, it's, it's legally obliged to find out the consequence of its, of its um, uh, efforts of attack. And that is part of the the attorney will tell you the attorney general will tell you that's part of the authority to actually go war go to war. Well, what's happened since nineteen uh, since two thousand and one, which was the first Gulf War, where um, there were for the first time there was filming, for example, of cruise missiles. You actually got cruise missiles disappearing down a chimney into into a factory, etc. But a lot of the evidence was actually on display and is available. Now, you don't get that the next morning. You don't get the, 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 the attack evidence presented to you. But it is possible that far more evidence can be once you've verified that that's exactly what it was because it's very easy to say, well, we can see it on screen, but then you've got to say, well, actually, what is it that you're seeing? It is far more com a, a complex problem uh, for any ministry. And an ministry doesn't want to do anything because in case it steps outside and you get in lit into litigation and you get into the, the reasons that you're at war in the first place. Hamid Dardigan, just tell us a bit more about your organisation, how you, your figures are used and how you're funded exactly. Yeah, um, well, uh, we've uh, had donations from the public. We've also, uh, that's Iraq Body Count, that is, uh, has had uh, donations from the public. We've also received funding um, from uh, trusts like the Joseph Roundtree Charitable uh, Trust and also um, the German um, government. Um, but I mean, most of the work has been done by volunteers for most of the period that we've been at work. And it's, it's, this is another one of those volunteer periods for us. Now, we get our information from uh, locally based sources nearly all the time, which is to say that local media are, of course, uh, local uh, news sources are, of course, extremely interested in even the smallest events. I mentioned air wars before who are monitoring airstrikes. But of course, a large amount of the deaths that still continue in this country are much smaller smaller events that barely make the international news but are locally very interesting, such as a policeman who's killed on his way to work by a magnetic device attached to their car, a magnetic bomb. And those sorts of things are locally reported and obviously locally very, very uh, significant for local populations. Mm. And we, um, although we can't verify things on the ground, we just simply don't have the resources. Most of the things uh, that are reported are um, corroborated by other sources within uh, within the country. And I mean, for ex I can give an example of, of this particular case um, of the um, RAF strike that is supposed to have uh, killed some people. I mean, we have uh, for the 9th of January, which is the day of 2017, when this is um, alleged to have happened, uh, we have a case of, of a senior um, academic, a former dean of the Faculty of Engineering, who was killed in his, in his home along with his wife and daughter mm. as a result of an airstrike. 
But of course, no one really knows whose airstrike that was. And you know, unless we actually can join up the information from on the ground with what governments know, with what militaries know, then we won't really be able to have uh, any kind of uh, a proper assessment of whether civilian protection measures are being uh, implemented as well as one hopes them to be, would hope them to be. Yes, I, I also mentioned Every Casualty Worldwide, which are, you yes. uh, you co-founded, I presume. Um, right. I mean, do the two organisations have the same kind of aim? Is it to, to, to have a record for the future or, or do you want to get to the truth? Yes. What is it about exactly? Um, I guess the same ethos, yes. Uh, but Every Casualty Worldwide is a charity that's working, uh, including with governments, including, in fact, um, with the uh, Chilcot Response Unit here in the MOD, um, on uh, improving casualty recording uh, around the world. And that's part of what we do is bring um, casualty recording organizations together to share methods and techniques. Um, we have uh, published a set of standards that have been uh, were launched at the ICRC in Geneva uh, in, in late 2016, and which um, you know the government also has, has a copy of. The, the thing is, um, casualty recording is um, not being done very well or not being done at all, and we want to improve uh, both those situations. All right, Hamid Dardigan, thank you for your time. That's Hamid Dardigan, co-founder of Iraq Body Count. Still to come, why is it Trump wants to kill off the Iranian nuclear agreement? Is NATO neglecting its navies and losing the battle at sea? Russia's rebuilding its naval forces with a programme that's been described as aggressive and ambitious. So is NATO lagging behind when it comes to dominating the oceans? Well, Professor Peter Roberts is Director of Military Sciences and Senior Research Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. Professor Roberts, hello to you. Uh, you've been looking at this in detail and have written an article about it for NATO Review. Why do you feel that NATO has neglected its maritime forces. Hi, well, I think it's really interesting. NATO obviously has been distracted in the last two decades almost by expeditionary campaigns, largely land-based, at, at range away from Europe. And, and what thinking has gone on about naval warfare has been extremely linear, very conventional, and sort of um, based around security rather than a, a, a sort of military threat. And this, of course, is in stark difference to the way NATO's adversaries are thinking, Russia in particular, thinking in a completely different way. Uh, and so I think NATO is lost it. It's, it's in the maritime space, it's completely on the back foot, it's talking in a language that really is, is very last century almost. Mm, so NATO's lost it, you say. Um, Russia presumably, presumably will be capitalising on that. What kind of capabilities are they planning for the future? Well, I mean, if you look at uh, Russia's current fleets, I mean, they are uh, often criticised as being old and lacking in capacity. But across their fleets, um, compared with those of NATO, in terms of ageing capability, there isn't that much difference. They've got 100 vessels planned, uh, over 50 major surface combatants, 24 submarines over the next 10 years. They're delivering a coherent force design for a specific mission, which is designed to challenge the vulnerabilities of NATO. Uh, they're big into subsurface warfare, uh, and not simply in terms of submarines, but also in other capabilities, including um, 
novel new technologies which merge things like autonomy and their subsurface capability into things like uh, System 6. Mm, you, you talk about in your article um, Russia being able to threaten undersea cables, power internet, water, fishing, trade activities, Arctic routes, and you also talk about potentially dictating the pace and scale of migration flows. Could Russia really do that? Well, there have been um, uh, rumours that Russian organised crime is now operating at various high levels inside uh, North African states, particularly inside those that are running uh, human trafficking and smuggling networks. Uh, initially, it, it appears, again, this is mostly rumour, that people who go in to investigate that have disappeared. But there is a degree of concern uh, that Russia uh, oligarchs and uh, criminal networks may well be rising to the top of uh, people trafficking networks, which mean that they could turn on and off the levers to mass migration flows from North Africa into Europe. Okay, so what should NATO be doing? Well, I think that you know, there's a, a variety of things NATO needs to be doing, but primarily it needs to start thinking about the sea. Um, and naval leaders in particular are guilty of doing this because the primary intellectual relationship of naval leaders across Europe and NATO, and indeed the US, is with technology. They sort of all believe there'll be some kind of beautiful silver bullet, AI, cyber, space or autonomous, that will give them the competitive edge and lead them to some kind of successful mm. uh, venture. They think that situational awareness and other headquarters will sort it out. But I'm afraid when you look at history and when you look at the way our adversaries are operating, this is about human capital. It's about the intellectual effort that humans place into it. Um, the NATO response can't simply be mirroring the Russian response, and it must have, therefore, an asymmetric edge of its own. Um, so to do that, NATO is doing some things. It's talking about a new maritime strategy, mm. which we've got to hope is nothing like the 2011 one. Uh, it's talking about having a new Atlantic command. It's talking about um, uh, increasing capacity and capability inside maritime command in northward. Mm. Um, but those will only be successful if they have the right mandate that comes around down from the top. Uh, if those leaders at the top think about the maritime and how to challenge an adversary who has much greater political will um, in a different mindset. Mm. Uh, and they've also got to be manned with the right people. Mm. Well, let's talk a bit about equipment, because earlier this week, the government's national security adviser, Sir Mark Sedwell, told the Defence Committee about the MOD's future plans for its two new aircraft carriers. Let's hear what he had to say. We will be one of only about, I think, six countries in the world that has this kind of strategic projection capability with the, when, when, we, when the carriers are fully, fully operational. But it is our intention, um, to, because of that, to use them with allies. And it's really important we keep allies in play in our thinking uh, here. So I would expect, particularly if they're in uh, a contested um, uh, uh, deployment, that there would be uh, allied capabilities, ships, aircraft, whatever, um, as, part of those, um, as part of those groups. Now, we'll see, we'll see what happens in the circumstances, but that is, that is part of the thinking about the use, uh, the use of the carriers. It's projecting them as a British sovereign capability, but one that will um, almost, uh, almost inevitably, so I would actually say inevitably, used in the context of allied, allied operations of some kind, if used in a contested, uh, in a contested environment. Christopher Lee, uh, that kind of cooperation on the aircraft carriers is something uh, you've been hearing about and talking about for some time. Yeah, you, you, you can't, you, you can't just send a, a carrier to sea. 
That's the first thing. And you have to send it with all the other assets that keep it afloat, that help it, etc. Um, but also its function, especially in sort of force projection, uh, it has a different role. And as uh, Mark Silver was saying there, you know, we're talking about half, half a dozen countries who've got that sort of, that we've got that sort of uh, uh, site of, uh, of actually building what is a, a huge force and here we come to another part of it. And it's the sort of thing that we, we, we're just hearing now. Um, and that is the commitment to it. If you build a carrier, you've got to build everything that goes with it. And you build two carriers, you're taking a big chunk out mm. of your defence budget. Now, look at other countries. And so when he says, well, you know, a lot of countries are not actually doing this sort of thing. A lot of countries don't do that sort of thing. A lot of NATO countries, for example, are not naval they don't have a maritime coastline, etc. They don't have the expenditure. They don't have the development program. And so quite often, you're really talking about what you can do as an alliance, which really boils down to doing with about sort of three or four countries that mm. actually make up the military gut of that alliance. And, and, so and in that light, uh, Professor Peter Roberts, are you confident about NATO's ability to defend its allies' seas? No. Um, and I think it's a, a huge area of concern. I mean, you know, you just look at the National Security Advisor's language then. He talks about what's needed to protect an aircraft carrier, ships, aircraft, whatever. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> fill you with a huge degree of reassurance that, that he gets it. But, you know, his entire mantra has been about how allies will protect this. Any other state that operates an aircraft carrier doesn't rely on allies. It is able to do it itself because one wonders where dependable allies are. Interestingly, mm. the first deployment of Queen Elizabeth, uh, they've talked about sending it to the Far East in 2021-22. Who exactly is the UK expecting to defend that carrier there? Is it the Japanese who have problems with rules of engagement, constitutional allowances? They're talking about whether it should be Korea. Perhaps Vietnam, Taiwan or Indonesia. Is it the Australians, none of whom really have the capacity or the capability? Mm. So who we want for protection is the US. This <laughs> means that the RN carriers effectively become a burden to the alliance and not part of burden sharing. All right, um, Professor Peter Roberts, thank you for your time. I'll pass your number to the National Security Advisor. Now, President Trump appears determined to scrap the only international agreement designed to stop Iran building a nuclear weapons system. All the time, the Iranians go along with the agreement. International trade can carry on with Iran in the normal manner. But President Trump says it's not worth the paper it's written on. Well, this morning, the Secretary General of the United Nations, who does not support Mr Trump's attitude, said it is better to attempt to improve the agreement rather than scrapping it. Well, Michael Stathis is Professor of Political Science at the University of Southern Utah. Professor, Professor Stath, it's good to speak to you today. When and why did President Trump take against this Iranian agreement? Well, he is of the opinion that uh, uh, it, it's not going to do anything to curtail uh, Iran's nuclear development. Uh, the problem here uh, is, is really a, a simple one, and that is I have serious doubts whether the president has read the agreement uh, uh, all the way through. He continues uh, to make statements that uh, uh, seem to be totally unrelated uh, to the reality. So what kind of things of is he both- saying then that, that you say he mustn't have read it? Well, that uh, 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 President Macron uh, was just uh, in the United States and uh, was lobbying the president very strongly to change his mind. But uh, the the best that we can get from the president is, we'll see, we'll see. 
but uh, it's it's uh, uh, it's something he's committed to uh, walking away from uh, uh, from the day he announced that he was running for president. Uh, so uh, even if he changes his opinion, uh, his uh, uh, he's locked into his political stance, and I don't see any way that uh, he can uh, make his base happy uh, by uh, uh, working within the framework of uh, the agreement in any in any possible way, which of course uh, is, uh, is is very sad because. Well, let's put it. Let's be blunt. This is the only element of sanity to come out of the Middle East uh, in decades. Uh, and uh, we are uh, the United States uh, has a, a new cast uh, looking at this that seems to be part of uh, a, a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's uh, Doctor Strangelove. John Bolton, uh, uh, the president himself, uh, 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 people that uh, well are very very aggressive. Let's let's be kind and uh, uh, and leave it there. And. Uh, uh, abroad, we have uh, uh, um, Netanyahu in Israel, uh, who uh, is baiting uh, uh, Trump uh, to um, uh, to do uh, well, basically what Israel wants. Uh, Israel wants this uh, agreement to fail, mm-hmm. uh, and um, uh, uh, Trump seems to be on exactly the same page. Christopher Lee, listen, uh, um, Michael. I remember this guy called Henry Cutler in uh, in Jerusalem. And Henry Cutler's working on, he led the team working on what the uh, Iranians are doing, okay? And he is the man responsible for all the uh, the pictures and saying, look, they've been doing this for years. Now, mm-hmm. I remember being in Washington and seeing Henry Cutler at a particular hotel. And he was the man that briefed uh, uh, Trump's team on why it was bad news. And he did so on the day before... Uh, President Trump or President-elect Trump said that the reason this was bad news was because Obama had okayed it. Mm, and it's that is got far more how it started. And once it started, he wasn't he wasn't getting off the trolley. Mm, so this was going, so, this was just going to go on. So Michael Stathis is going to say what he's going to do next week, isn't he? What, what do you think Donald Trump will do? Well, um, I, I think Christopher uh, hit the nail on the head. Anything that uh, uh, was associated with uh, President Obama, uh, Trump wants to discredit, destroy, uh, or walk away from. Mm. Uh, and uh, this at agreement the was... Of, at the expense of the Middle East, then? Uh, his ego knows no bounds, uh, and mm. uh, he'll pay any price to uh, to stroke that ego. Yeah. And, and Michael, uh, I'll tell you one thing you're missing here. I promise you, book money on this. Book money on it with your bookmaker. Uh, uh, President You've Trump, done this before, haven't you? Free advice on SITREP from Christopher Lee. And I collected. Listen, uh, President Trump has already done it in Korea. His big story on, on, on Iran is going to suggest and then get a meeting with the Grand Ayatollah. So is that what you think is going to happen? That will fix it. Michael? <laughs> Well, <laughs> you reckon? I've, What's the I've, possibility $50, of that? $50, you can afford it. Go on. Uh, he, he will try, but uh, the chances of uh, uh, 
uh, how do we put this? Ali Khamenei, uh, you know, coming down uh, to Trump's level for a discussion uh, uh, is—it's uh, crazy. Mm. Uh, uh, Iran would not uh, would would not allow it. Uh, but uh, they would see it as uh, as demeaning, and uh, well, I might agree with them. But um, uh, uh, he may try. Uh, you know, he he may try, but uh, uh, th- that's not going to happen. The best this, uh, the best chances here, uh, you know, somehow, some way, um, uh, is is for uh, our, is for the other European powers. Just briefly, Michael. Uh, um, I mean, you must have some very informed students who you lecture. I mean, what kind of things do they say to you about this? What he's told them. <laughs> well, uh, half of them. Uh, well, not half of them. There, there, there is a cadre of them that uh, 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 you know hold to the opinion that uh, it was a bad deal that uh, Obama uh, uh, paid uh, billions of dollar of American dollars to uh, to buy the deal. Uh, and I mean, it's the typical um, uh, uh, what we would call a redneck uh, uh, response. Uh, the others, uh, uh, thankfully, uh, have taken the time to uh, listen to me and uh, read hmm. some of the things that uh, you know that I, good uh, I, I have written. Hmm. And uh, uh, you know, and uh, they, along with me, believe that uh, uh, the stability of the of the Persian Gulf uh, uh, hinges. On, uh, on on this kind of uh, mm. sanity, you All know right. the one thing the one thing that Trump really fails to understand here, uh, he keeps quoting uh, Ronald Reagan, who quoted uh, a, a Soviet leader, "Trust but verify." This agreement is the only framework uh, that uh, is possible okay. for the next uh, 20 years to actually. Verify. And there we must leave it. Professor Michael Stathis, you had the last word. Thank you for your time today. That's all we have time for this week. Do check out our video on the Forces News Facebook page and send us your comments. I'll speak to you the same time next week. From me, Kate Jabot, goodbye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. A plea.